I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is the Ruler Podcast, brought to you by Lacquer, bicycle insurance powered by the community. Bit of a long-distance theme to this edition, later we'll be hearing from the writer Emily Chappell about the appeal of self-supported transcontinental racing. But first, EF Education's Lachlan Morton, surely a contender now Taylor Finney has retired for the quirkiest pro in the peloton. For a couple of years now, Lachlan has managed to combine a successful road career with long-distance, sometimes off-road adventures. So how did that come about? Um... I think it sort of started with the the thereabouts trips I did with my brother. Um, Which were on YouTube and got yeah. a big sort of audience. Yeah. Um, like, because I sort of, my progression in cycling, um, it wasn't rapid, but I was very young when I became like a world tour professional. I was like 19 years old. Yeah, I don't know. That was my my only goal in life, I guess from when I was 10 years old was to become a world tour professional and then I was like 19 and I'd done it um and then sort of I mean everything that went along with that you know moving overseas by myself uh that age leaving everything else behind and then just the the expectations that went along when it becomes your job um it changes your your relationship I guess with it's with a big thing to do when you're 19 isn't it yeah um and I was the sort of personality, I was like, I, I'm, I can do it myself, like I don't need help. Um, and just through that process, um, you know, within two years, I'd, I'd sort of fallen out of love with it um, and didn't want to ride my bike, didn't want to race my bike. Um, what was, it that, what was it, it that made you fall out of love, do you think? I mean, I, th- I think it was a combination of a, a lot of things. Um, but... I mean, I think the biggest part was coming to grips with, um, you know, your passion becoming your your occupation, being treated, you know, by your team as, uh, I mean, you're a contractor, you turn up, you've got a job to do, um, and then you go back to your apartment uh, where I was living alone in a foreign country. Yeah, just that, that experience. I think it was just, uh, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so, like, that was a hard thing to come to grips with. But you carried on riding your bike, did you? Yeah. Um, so then, yeah, one off-season, my brother had also gone through a similar thing, um, was now working in, in TV in Australia. 
And I was like, let's ride to uh, Uluru. Um, just like the two of us, let's go do it. And how far was that? Uh, it's like three, 4,000 K. Like, let's just get away from everything and just go do that. Because like, you know, worst case scenario is you don't learn anything and you got to see Uluru. <laughs> or best case scenario is you learn a bit about yourself on the way and maybe like answer a few questions that we both had. And so, yeah, I guess that, that was such an amazing experience for both of us. But me personally, it really helped change my relationship with what my bike was. Because before that, it had always been just like I used the bike to like try and win and kick people's ass. And then after that, it was like, oh, I use a bike to like make my living. And then that sort of changed it to like, I can use my bike to like experience a bunch of amazing new things and and learn more about myself in the process. And did it occur to you at that time that there might be a way of combining that with a kind of a professional road career? Yeah, I never thought I could uh, I could do that. I thought I was always going to have to separate the two, um, like go do these trips in the off season, and then go back to the day job sort of during the season, um, which is what I then went on to do for a few years with with Jelly Belly, and then on Dimension Data, um, I was just kind of combining the two um and how did that go down with the teams and some of your teammates uh, i mean on jelly belly it was great i had like uh an awesome boss in danny van out um and he loved it he loved that we'd go and do these crazy things and then um turn up and race it got a little more difficult coming back into to world tour racing doing that because it's just i think people see it as like a risk or a distraction or it's just not the way things are done i guess but you're um, still getting results on, on the road, yeah you? yeah i was still going all right and i mean i started to realize that like as long as you show up and you're going okay then like you get left alone more or less um it's when you're not going well that's when people get on your ass now you've been riding with ef education first and your kind of approach seems to fit in with that team and the way the way they work yeah definitely like i had a relationship with rafa beforehand i'd been speaking with them about this sort of idea of combining the two um it's something i'd heard a few times before and was like oh well let's see if if they can pull it off um but was committed to doing it you know either way and then they, yeah they joined forces with the f and i was like holy shit, this is going to happen. <laughs> um, and then even still, it was it was like, okay, how's this all going to work? What races are we going to do? Like, Yeah, then they had a list of races and I was like, I want to do all of them. Um, and yeah, like basically it, it, all, it all fell into place. So one of the races you did uh, this year was GB Dura, which is basically Land's End to John O'Groats. Yeah. Um, and it sounded like a absolutely amazing event what yeah was like? yeah it was incredible I actually have to give my brother the credit for finding the race because we wanted to do an ultra race as part of the alternate calendar but there's all the the things attached with ultra racing with sleep deprivation and um i just didn't want to jump into something like that thinking i'd know what to do um so the format of gb duro is it's actually broken into four stages and you can have a, a rest in between the stages are really <laughs> yeah, long. I didn't realise, like, 650k on paper, it's like, okay, it's long, but uh, it's, it's maybe doable. Um, and then when you realise, like, you know, 
a lot of that's off road, a lot of it's on bridleways, a lot of it's you know walking and opening and closing gates and uh, doing all that. Um, takes it takes a very long time. How long did the whole thing take you on 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 the bike? I mean, it was a week all up. As far as hours go, I think it was something like seventy or eighty hours, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, like a an amazing experience and through um, some extraordinary scenery as well. In, yeah. In the, the thing with that race in particular is the the route that they put together was so incredible. So they basically had five different people who, who knew the areas best put it together independently. It was one of those those routes that it took you down every little like locals only back way, like this you know this little trail that cuts through the back of town here and like every every cool little bit of riding on the way we did. That was almost like company in itself. It felt like you had like a, a local with you, uh, but that was just the route, the purple line on the garment. Yeah, amazing, really amazing experience. And when you got to John O'Groats, what was that like? That was huge. The strangest bit was for the first two days, I couldn't wait for it to be over, you know, because um, was, I was having such a hard time. But then I had, I had a moment on the, the last day when I was, I was having such an incredible experience just being out there and riding and having no other distraction. You know, like I had one simple focus, which is like, let's get to, you know, John O'Groats. Um, so nothing else in your life mattered. And my body felt great. You know, the terrain was incredible. The route was incredible. It was like everything just came together in this perfect sort of moment. And at that point, I was like, I don't want it to be over, you know? Um, like... Once you get to the finish line, it's like back to the real world a little bit. Um, so yeah, it, it was a it was a strange experience to finish, but I mean, over overwhelmingly, there was a lot of um, relief. But it was like two days later, I was already looking up different ultra events I could jump in. <laughs> and one of the other things you did was three peaks, yeah. which just has you know an extraordinary reputation as being a really tough race yeah and did you have any idea what it was going to be like not really like i mean i had lots of different people tell me about it but i think anyone who knows the the three peaks race you can't you can't tell anyone what it's going to be like you know you got to go out there and just see it um had you done any cyclocross or anything no never raced cyclocross Uh, i'd raced like a a gravel race but never a cyclocross race (laughs) so it was it was so different from anything that i'd done what was it like when you actually saw the course and- the court like i was like i could i still until the gun went off and we started doing it i couldn't get my head around how this whole race was going to play out you know because you saw different snippets of the course and you're like i don't are we running here like then there's this road section like it's such a it's such a unique event that i just kept finding myself like like I'd be going full gas up one of the hills or something and then I could just start laughing because I was like, this whole thing is so absurd. You know, we're all taking it so seriously. There's all these crowds out here and like, <laughs> it's, so, it's so ridiculous, this whole race. Um, How did you get but, on with the running? Uh, not too bad. I blew myself on up Simon Fell, the first first climb, um, trying to follow Rob Jem. Um Who's a, a thing, really, he's really, a great really runner. good runner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I didn't realise. I was sort of like, okay, I guess this is the pace we're running. Um, and then got like halfway up and was like, like I went from feeling, ah, oh, I feel fine. I was like, maybe I'm a great runner. <laughs> and then was all of a sudden like heart rate 
one million and, and had to walk for quite a way just because I'd totally blind myself. No, I, I enjoyed that element of it. I think the, that's the coolest bit about that race is it suits no one, you know, or, or it's a little bit of it suits everyone, whichever way you look at it. Um, and he did okay, didn't you? Because you finished fourth. Yeah, I was fourth in the end. I learned a lot. <laughs> I, learned, I learned a lot. Um, so I really want to go back to that one. The whole environment around that race is like, it's. it reminded me of being like 10 years old, turning up to like our cycle club for like a handicap, you know. Um, it was, it, it's a really, really unique and special event for sure. So what else are you going to be doing next year, do you know? Uh, I'm not fully sure yet. Um, I've heard talk of a few things, like maybe Cape Epic. Um is that Just in South the, Africa? Yeah, yeah. It's like a six-day mountain bike race in South Africa, which would be amazing. Uh, I'd really, really always wanted to do that. And I've heard maybe Race to the Rock, which I guess would be Australia's... Uh, I mean, I'd really like to do it. I don't know if they'll let me do it. Um, so maybe if I say it here, then, then we'll get to go. Where um, is that? Uh, it's, in, it's in Australia, um, and you, it's a race to Uluru. Um, well you know the route anyway yeah I mean it depends where they start they start somewhere different each year um, but I've been following it for a few years and it looks like I know that I, the Outback has like a very special place for me I don't know like it's, it's somewhere that I want to get into uh, more um, and yeah this race is that's what it's all about so I'm, I'm really happy we get to go there and do that. Lachlan Morton. You're listening to the Ruler Podcast, brought to you by Lacker, bicycle insurance powered by the community. I'm Mark Williamson, and I've been a Lacker customer since the start of 2019, so about eight months now. So I was on this new bike and stopped off at a coffee shop at a hotel just to send a few emails and make a call. Came out and found someone heard taken off um, the headset at the front, they'd cut the braking gear cables, they'd unscrewed the handlebars and stolen the, the, the bars and shifters. Lacquer were phenomenal actually, I was blown away by both the immediacy and the kind of helpfulness of the support, they seemed keen to help uh, and it was just a remarkably hassle-free experience. couldn't have been happier with the service despite being incredibly frustrated that somebody had decapitated my uh, my new bike and you can find out more about lacquer on laka.co.uk now christmas is approaching and if you're looking for a beautifully written book about cycling which is a little different from the standard biographies and histories i can thoroughly recommend emily chapel's where there's a will Emily's first book was a reflection on her life as a courier on the streets of London. This one takes you the stage further. In its essence, it's about long distance racing and the places that it takes you. So um, it starts off with me uh, tentatively discovering the transcontinental and thinking, oh, I don't think that would be for me. And then gradually getting my head around the fact that perhaps it was for me. Um, and eventually I, I ended up winning the race in 2016. And had a much more interesting journey than I expected. I, um, I thought winning would be the high point of the entire adventure. And uh, maybe predictably it turns out that the adventure was the high point and the win was a bit of a damp squib at the end, really. 
Um, so it turned into a journey that was not quite the one I was expecting. And I hope that the book will be a bit like that for people who read it. Um, I imagine some people will pick it up thinking, this is going to be a book about epic, hardcore endurance racing. And there's certainly a bit of that, but I'm hoping that they'll get other things out of it as well. How did you get into it? Because I remember from your previous book, What Goes Around, that you know you started as a, a cycle career in London, you were a cycle career in London for a while, and slowly discovered sort of, you know, riding outside, outside there. How did you get into long distance racing? I think it was it was partly just that Having been a courier, I'd become physically and mentally dependent on riding all day, every day. So after couriering, um, I went off and cycled across Asia, and I've done lots of bike tours and things, simply because I wasn't willing to wind my life or my cycling back down. It's kind of telling that I say life there um, and become a normal person. So it's, it's about maintaining this. You know, I'm riding every day, I'm doing long distances, and then also always wanting to do something bigger. So I ended up riding across Asia. I attempted to cycle around the world because couriering had become normal. It started off as a big challenge and then I got good at it and it was just something I could do. So I thought, right, let's find something I can't yet do. And having ridden across Asia and overcome all of those obstacles and ridden across various very wintry places, I needed something else I thought I couldn't do. And that was long distance racing. Is there a sort of a conflict between that sort of desire just to ride and to tour and to see new places and the sort of competitive element of endurance racing? Does it sort of take away the point a little bit? I think it's a very complex conflict and uh, not, not a bad one, not a conflict, maybe just more of a tension because even when I was touring before I was racing, I was always thinking I'm either going too fast or too slow. So I'm going too slow, you know, everybody else is doing better than me, I could be there by now, I'm so lazy and weak and all of that. But also, no matter how long you're taking, there's always things you're not seeing. There's always, um, you know, what's behind that mountain range, what's down that little road I'm not taking, and all of that. And racing, I mean, racing across Europe there's a lot you miss out on, but there is a lot you see as well. So one of the things I really loved about uh, the Transcontinental was in the space of a day, for example, there was one day where I woke up at about 3am in an alpine meadow with the fresh mountain air. Literally in the meadow? Literally on the grass, yes. Favourite place to sleep, alpine grass. And from there I cycled down into northern Italy, uh, across the northern Italian plain. As the sun was coming up, it was all pink, then crossed into Slovenia, battled through Slovenia for a couple of hours. And by the end of the day, I was on the Croatian coast, high up, overlooking all the islands as the sun set, in this completely different landscape. And I went to bed that night and looked back and couldn't quite believe it was just one day that I'd seen all of that in just one day. I had to run through it a couple of times because at first it felt as though that morning had been maybe three days ago. So you, you see a lot. So for those of us who don't really have much idea about the sort of long distance racing, basically what are the rules? The rules are fairly simple but also fairly stringent. So um, it varies from race to race. But the kind of races I'm doing, generally the idea is you're completely self-supported. You're not allowed to have any help that you've arranged from anyone outside. So you can't have friends meeting you in cars. You can't stay in a mate's house. 
all sorts of things like that. Um, there's a little, a grey area over whether you're allowed to accept help that's unsolicited. So, for example, if a local person spontaneously offers me a sandwich, some would argue that's fine because you didn't plan that, What you weren't relying on it, it's just a thing that happened to you on the road. Some people would take that a lot more seriously and say, no, absolutely not, must be completely self-sufficient. And then um, with, with the transcontinental in particular, it's a non-stop race. So you just go until you're tired and then you sleep and you get up and you go again. There's no enforced rest periods or breaks or stages or anything. There were one or two mandatory route, uh, parts of the route. So uh, most of the checkpoints would have a parkour. So, for example, you've got to take this mountain pass to get to the checkpoint just to you know, make it more fun. And then there'd be one or two roads that they'd decided most riders were likely to go that way, but it wasn't safe. So they'd ban certain roads. And in many cases, that would mean you'd have to take a more complicated but much more interesting route, which I always enjoyed. But broadly, the route you take is up to you within those constraints. Yeah. And that is another thing I really love about this sort of racing, because it's it's a very different skill set in many ways from traditional road racing. It's not only about your ability to survive and sustain yourself for the you know one or two weeks it takes to get across the continent. There's more to it than just your, your physical strength. There's a lot of strategy and planning. So if you care to, you can spend, I think, six to nine months planning your route. You can spend days of your life on street view. You can check every junction. You can compare altitude profiles. You can do a lot of the work before the race, and that will really help you. I was always a bit haphazard on that, and I also... It was very hard for me to ride past an interesting looking mountain road and not go and have a look. So I wasn't the most efficient route planner. But you still managed to win. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I probably shouldn't have won. I, I took uh, I took a lot of really interesting detours the year I won, um, including ending up, ending up in Albania, which um, nobody else did. Um, I think my route was quite creative in comparison to most. But uh, yeah, I came in... Um, just under two days ahead of the second place woman. And you've talked about the the joys of it and the sort of unique experience, but, the, but there's some danger in there as well, isn't there, in all sort of long distance um, riding and racing, which I, I know you reflect on a bit in the book. Yeah, the danger question I think about all the time. Ever since I've been on a bike, people have been asking me very, very regularly if what I do is dangerous. And I don't have an absolute answer because I'm still thinking about this all of the time. You know, it was a different discussion when I was a cycle courier. When I was cycling through, you know, so-called exotic foreign countries, it was a slightly different discussion. And now with the um, self-supported racing, it's another one. It is always, to a certain extent, dangerous to be cycling on the road on a bike. Um, you know, we all know what can happen. Both the fact that you're going very fast on a bike and the road is hard and you're soft and that can go badly and also there's traffic. We're not going to get away from that. And I don't have a complete knowledge of all the statistics. I know, broadly speaking, if you ride a bike, you're more likely to prolong your life than shorten it. So I I cling to that and I think of all the, the wonderful things I've got out of cycling. I think with the danger question we're always battling through all of the prejudices that we have and something that is unknown or seen as strange is always seen as more dangerous so someone asked me this a little while ago um and I realized I thought about it a bit that the kind of racing I do or did because I think I've I might have stopped now 
is not necessarily much, much more dangerous than, you know, mainstream professional road racing. Because if you look at just the last few years in pro road racing, look at all of the young men and women who have died of heart attacks, who have died in crashes, who have been paralysed or very seriously injured, who have committed suicide or had mental breakdowns and all of that. And then try to argue that what I do is much more dangerous and irresponsible. I mean, the forces that are threatening us and protecting us are very different. Um, I feel much more safe and comfortable in the field I'm in. I think for the one crucial reason that I am completely in charge of myself and my own welfare. So if I'm racing day after day across a continent... I'm having to look after my own energy levels, um, my own, you know, nutrition, my own body, my own route finding, my own, you know, my safety in the world around me. And I have to keep an eye on myself because no one else is. So I can't carry on knowing that someone will catch me at the end of the day or knowing that there's someone alongside me to keep an eye on me. I'm on my own. So if I'm getting tired and I start to get dizzy or anything like that, I have to stop and you know rest sort myself out and I've always got to keep a little bit of energy back knowing that at some point I'm going to have to figure out where I'm sleeping I'm going to have to make sure you know there are shops open that I can get food and I think that uh, having to have more control over yourself and your environment does keep you safer but there are caveats you know people are injured and die in these races so i the overall answer is, I don't know. I'm still thinking about it. As uh, so the more and more attention is uh, focused on endurance racing and, and, and long-distance uh, self-supported racing, and it sort of becomes kind of more professional, I suppose. Is there a sort of a breaking down of the distinction between this sort of racing and traditional pro racing? Yes, and it's really, really interesting to watch. The Transcontinental started in... 2013 that's now six seven years ago and that was more or less the time when this new self-supported racing started to happen and I've noticed in the time it's been happening there's been a bit of a changing of the guards so the people who were doing this kind of racing in the the very early days I think mostly are not doing it anymore they've moved on so I I know um, I'm friends with Juliana Boring we talk about it quite a lot both of us went into it, got really into it, won races, loved it, and now, you know, still still love it, still love cycling, but have no desire whatsoever to race. And Christoph Ollichert is the same. I spoke to him a couple of months ago. He won three editions of the Transcontinental. He was known as The Machine, and he still, he's still Christoph. He still loves cycling. He just doesn't have any urge to race anymore. But there's a new breed of people coming into it who are really um, different and interesting to watch. So I think James Hayden, who's won the race a couple of times, was a, a bit of a precursor of this. He is, compared to me, so much more scientific and rigorous and disciplined. You know, he, he I think in uh, 2015, 2016, he decided he was going to win the race and he spent the entire year single-mindedly preparing, leaving no stone unturned in a way that really puts me to shame. And I spoke to Fiona Kolbinger um, a couple of weeks ago. She's, Who won the race overall, didn't she, this she, year? She did, yeah, which was um, amazing. And I've been predicting that this would happen all along. And I asked her about you know, her preparations and uh, 
how she approaches it. And again, thought, you're so different from me. You're really rigorous. You're, you're treating this as a, a, you know, a, a project and an exercise. Whereas for me, although I do have many competitive bones in my body, it was always really just about, let's see what happens. Let's have an adventure. And you've got pros like Lachlan Morton and Emma Pooley who are sort of, uh, you know, dipping their toes in, the, in, in this area as well. Very much, yeah. And uh, there were, I think in the earlier days, there were a few. I know there was a, I can't remember his name. There was a chap called uh, Geoffroy from Canada who I think was a former pro racer who was in the Transcontinental in 2016. Um, so I think there are one or two. And I know there are people who've raced at quite a high level. But yeah, this year particularly, there's been Lachlan Morton in GB Duro and, and others. Emma Pooley won the further race outright and sounds like she had the time of her life. Molly Weaver has just announced that she's going to be going into this sort of racing. And I know a couple of other people who are not necessarily pros, but you know have raced at national level. And just decided, actually, no, I think this is where I'm going to go. So the type of racer that I was, I I wouldn't win the Transcontinental now. Um, I wouldn't be able to compete with these people. And if I technically had, you know, the strength and speed and skill that they have, which I could possibly manage, I think I'd get a week into the race and think, you know what, I just want to go up that mountain. That's what happened the last time I, <laughs> the last time I raced. I'm so so unprofessional. So if you're not uh, going to be doing more racing, what are you going to be doing? What, how are you going to fill that hole? I did wonder this for a while, because what I was saying earlier about you know, always having to find a bigger challenge and do something I couldn't yet do, I thought this even on the, in the final days of the Transcontinental, I was having an amazing time. I remember I was riding into Greece thinking this, feeling on top of the world and thinking, this is day 11. I shouldn't be feeling this strong and happy. I'm going to need to find something bigger than this. And I briefly thought about doing something like, you know, cycling around the world, trying to get the record for that or something like that. And I didn't in the end for all sorts of reasons. And uh, Jenny Graham has recently done that. In fact, a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, she finished that. So for a while, I wondered, you know, what's going to be bigger? And what I've done now is I've split it up into two things. So cycling is something I love and I have to do a lot of. So I will always cycle a lot. And I'm getting back into Audax, uh, which is brilliant because it's stupidly long distances. It's completely non-competitive. It's just really, really fun. So, you know, it's sufficiently hardcore. Um, but also you have lunch breaks. So my typical Audax style is to ride quite hard between all the controls and then have really long breaks at the controls and just enjoy myself and eat and drink. Um, and I'm telling people that uh, I think if this were a romantic comedy, Audax would be like the reliable best friend who was there all along and actually turned out to be the love of my life. But then there is the side of me that needs some challenge something that I can't do and controversially I have begun running I'm not sure if I should mention this on a cycling podcast that won't end well well it's that just it's just well. like cycling but without the bike yeah. um so I, I've just entered a 45 mile race in uh, March uh, as in I entered it yesterday um so we'll see how that goes um I think a useful break on my overdoing it is that I cannot endanger my cycling so if it gets to the stage where the running is starting to damage my legs I'll just have to stop because I refuse to um to jeopardize my cycling because it just makes me so happy like no matter what sort of cycling I'm doing as long as there's enough of it 
And as long as I've got that in my life, everything's okay. Emily Chapel and Emily and Lachlan were both guests, of course, at the Ruler Classic in London, along with a whole peloton of other cycling figures, many of whom will be appearing on this podcast over the next few months. Alongside the events on stage, there were rooms full of the best and most innovative bikes and kit imaginable, a paradise for Ruler's desire editor Stuart Clapp. So, in the first of what I fear may become a series, Stuart and I went for a wander around the stands. So, Stuart, we've stopped by the uh, Castelli stand. Um, They've got some uh, new product, but also uh, some old and very familiar product as well. We have. We're actually with uh, Rich Mardle, my mate Rich, um, uh, who works for Saddleback, which is the UK distributor for Castelli. And, uh, yeah, we uh, we just swung by because... I, all right, I'll fess up, I didn't realise it was 10 years since Rich sent me a prototype of the Gabba. That's crazy that it was that long ago. And I remember when he sent it to me and I, and I had it and I, I didn't know what I was looking at. And now everyone, it's, it's almost become like the vacuum hoover brand of have you got your Gabba. Talk us through it, Rich. That 10 years has gone past pretty, pretty quickly, hasn't it, really? Think about it. Um, we all remember Cervelo Test Team days and uh, that kind of the, the Black Knights, as it were, changing the way that the Pro Peloton dressed. Nothing was baggy. Everything was uh, becoming more aero. And it was a real element of, you know, the first concept of marginal gains, I suppose, really. And uh, Gabrielle Rausch came to the one of the team meetings and was like, this rain jacket, oh, it's a bit baggy, it's a bit loose. It was traditional. It was a rain cape. I was like, maybe we can get something a little bit more fitted, a little bit more aero, it was like. And uh, so Steve Smith took it away um, and uh, kind of gave the concept to the cutting guys at Castelli to come up with a uh, profile of an aero jersey that was a little bit more of a rainwear piece. You know, it didn't need to be perfectly rain protective, but at least be able to cope with the wind and the elements of cold that they were going to get in the early season classics. And, and it's weird for a, you know, a piece of clothing, it was a real game changer, wasn't it? Oh, huge. Um, but, you know, in that early iteration, no one really gave it much thought or time. And the whole concept came up and it was just like, here you go, throw it together almost, take it down to the boys. Does that work? And they were like, yeah, that works. That's amazing. Um, it was obviously, it was, that was 2009. By 2011, we brought the first one to market. And I think the global numbers of sale were like just shy of 300 units to which the UK and thanks to Shu, um, we bought a fair number of those. And it was like, we believed in the concept. But it wasn't until 2013, the infamous Milan San Remo, where the, uh, the, well, amazing bit of marketing on one part, but none of our doing it. We just made a beautiful product that was, the pros took to a self-endorsing, um, whether they were Castelli sponsored or not. It's a simple bit of kit, really, isn't it? I mean, like, that's, the, that's the perfection of it. Um, zip up. Short sleeve, you know, slightly longer, slightly higher collar, little drop tails and pockets. It's like it's, the concept wasn't necessarily massively evolutional from a, a typical summer jersey. You know, we're just playing a part where it became a little bit more ergonomic, rain protective, wind protective, and um, aero. It's like everyone looking for that game. But I remember the guys saying some little quotes of Heinrich Hauser and uh, coming back and saying, "Oh, you know what." It's like, I feel like a, a dark night here, you know. The guys in black are here and we're going to really rip this thing up. Everyone felt fast and I think that was the whole part. People started to go, those boys look slick. So, you know, lots of people are making something that's a bit like a gather now. Um, how are Castelli trying to sort of stay ahead? What's the next thing? But Ten years of evolution um, and we've got it on display here at Ruler Classic. It's, uh, 
it's kind of it's, it's it's small changes really, but the big steps are in fabric development. Uh, so our partners, Gore, um, who have evolved through the process of being a windstopper fabric that we've used in this product for so long. Um, for 2019, we've launched the Gabba ROS um, using the new Gore-Tex Infinium. So um, tape seam through the shoulders, um, a lot more water protection um, than previous iterations. And it's all about cut and styling, really. Those fabrics become more breathable, become better protection, it's lighter. Um, so, yeah, small tweaks like that, but the concept remains the same. There are stylistically a couple of things that I've noticed that have changed. And this is this, this 3M thing on the shoulder here. Is that 3M? Uh, yes, yeah, so that's a reflective detail. It's, it's basically a tape seam external. Yes. So what was the thinking behind that then? So, not to put this word out there, but um, that's a um, when you kind of ride your bike and you're kind of looking for the main points of water ingress, it runs over the shoulder. So front load, when you're in the tuck, giving it some beams, um, that's the point where the drain will drive into the garment. And so to avoid water penetration in the top of the shoulder line, we tape it. Um, and we don't have to really worry about anywhere else on the jacket because we can use clever seam overlays and things like that to allow water to fall off. Castelli's always been quite a, a step ahead and you were talking about the aero kit. Um, how did that come about then? So you, you go back a little step further, but we don't really talk about this. Um, and you go back to the David Miller era of being at Sonia Duval and we all remember that team, Scott Bicycles, uh, Castelli Clothing, a little bit of a, um, a grey history um, to say the least. But um, uh, that was kind of the first concept where those aero jerseys were taking place. And that was a push through Miller, really, more than anything, because he wanted something from TT um, and that concept of speed brought into the road side of things. So that was first development. But Cervelo Test Team is where that took and flourished. It, the whole team philosophy of like rider feedback, looking for gains where they could find them really in product development, and that not just in clothing, but everything else they looked at. And uh, that turned into the aero jersey taking synonymous place in the free aero short having aero improvements. Um, moving into the San Remo speed suit, which was uh, made for Heinrich Hauser, who lost by millimeters to Mark Cavendish. And um, uh, it kind of like it just evolved from there, really. So, yeah, summer tends to be about speed and winter about protection. Thanks, Rich. And thank you, Stuart. That's it from this podcast. Catch you on the next one. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.